If you're not already turning there, please, you can take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And if you are visiting and you would like to read in the translation that I'm reading in, you can just take the pew Bible that's located in front of you and read from it, which is the ESV. So we will be continuing in our series that we've been going through for the past few weeks, Created to Glorify God and Enjoy Him Forever. That's the title of the series, where we have been looking specifically at God's glory and our joy, which is found in His glory. That's what we've been made for. That's what we've been created for. And when we glorify God, when we live and our aim of life is to make much of God, we are, we are satisfied and we, we find our, our greatest joy. And we've been looking at this theme through the, the four-part division of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So far we've looked at creation, fall, And then last week we were looking at redemption. We haven't got to restoration yet. That's what we're going to be looking at next week whenever we look specifically at revelation and when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and He will make all things new. All things will be restored. This morning, however, this is the sermon that I told you toward the beginning that I had added. It wasn't a part of the original series when I preached it at Camp Pearl to those students there. And the reason why I wanted to add this particular sermon is because last week when we were looking at redemption, we saw that Christ has fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. You know, He is the, the serpent crusher. He came on the scene and He lived the perfect life that we had failed to live. And He hung on the cross. He was crucified there in the process of being crucified. He crushed the head of the serpent. He was raised from the dead. He vindicated God's glory. He showed it to be holy and righteous and worthy above all things. And then He restored our relationship with God. Fellowship can be enjoyed with God once more because of Christ on the cross. And we looked at some other things as well that Jesus accomplished on the cross, but those were the two main accomplishments. Because in having our fellowship with God restored, we can once again glorify Him, make much of His glory, enjoy it, enjoy His presence, have satisfaction, have pleasures forevermore. What Psalm 16 describes, being in God's presence and in His presence alone. What I did not talk very much about, though, and what this sermon is going to focus on, is that although that is restored, life is still not perfect. The Christian life is not perfect. And although we are Christians, although we've been bought by the precious blood of Christ, although we've been ransomed by Him, although we have a relationship with God, we still struggle very much so. And you are all aware of that because you all struggle daily. I struggle daily. So what this sermon is going to 
focus on, what the goal of this sermon is, is I want to take us to an example in the Bible that shows struggle. And not only does it show struggle, but it shows how to struggle well. That's what we want to do as Christians. We want to struggle well. Or, according to the title of this sermon, we want to be able to fight for joy when our souls feel cast down. And I don't think there's any other example that is better than Psalm 42. So if you would, look with me as we read it together. Beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Father, we come before You once again. And as we open Your Word before us, We pray and we ask that You would quiet our minds and our hearts. You would help us to focus upon it, to be instructed by it, to be built up by it. We also pray that we would receive it with joy. Lord, we are talking about a a hard subject this morning, something that we are all very well acquainted with. We all struggle. We all know struggle very well. The Christian life is not a life that is lived without struggle either. Even as Christians, we, we face hardship, we face great sadness, we face depression and, and many other things. And Lord, we need Your help to, to struggle well. And I pray that as we look at the example of this man in Psalm 42, we would see how to do that. We would see how to struggle well. We would see how to fight for joy even when our soul is cast down. May you be with us as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
As we go through Psalm 42, I have a relatively simple outline for the psalm. It's really just broken down into two parts. So what my goal is, as we walk through the psalm together, is I want to show you the situation that this man is in, why he feels cast down, why he feels so sad, why he's fighting this spiritual depression, as Martin Lloyd-Jones called it long ago. See his situation, what's going on, what's causing it, and then I want us to look at how he fights in the midst of it. So that's what we're going to look at. His situation and how he fights in the midst of it. Before I talk about the the situation that the psalmist is in, though, first let me make a couple of comments very quickly on the the title of the psalm, which you'll find right above verse 1 which says, to the choir master, that is, the person who is in charge of the music. Remember that the psalms were meant to be sung by God's people. And in this setting, it would have been sung in the the temple courtyard or something like that when God's people were to come and congregate around the temple and the choir master or the people who are in charge of the music would then lead God's people in singing God's praises. So to the choir master, the one who's in charge of the music, a mascal. What is a mascal? Well, we're really not sure exactly what mascal means. The word really is, it's not translated into any particular English word. It's just transliterated, which just means that it's taken from the original language and basically given English letters. And so you pronounce it as mascal or mascal, something like that. So we don't really know what exactly it means, so we can't put it with an English word that would fit with it. But most scholars, they say that it's a musical or a liturgical term that means something like a a poem of contemplation or a poem of instruction. So when you come to Psalm 42, you are meant to be instructed. You are meant to contemplate what this man has before you. You are meant to be built up by it. That's what we guess anyways, an educated guess of what maskil means. And then the last part of the, the title, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, they are, or at least one of them is anyways, the author of this psalm, and they are the the authors of many of the other psalms as well. But they are descended from Korah, and you may remember that Korah was one of the guys one of the leading guys who led the rebellion against Moses whenever they were wandering in the wilderness in Numbers, what chapter was it? In Numbers 16. So in Numbers 16, Korah and some of these other guys, they gathered together and they led this rebellion against Moses because they were under the impression that Moses was taking being in the presence of the Lord, you know, primarily the priesthood 
uh, for granted and saying that only he and the Levites were allowed to, to do that, which they were, but they were interpreting it in a way as if they were better than everybody else. The Korahites were given the responsibility of being gatekeepers to the temple of God, but they wanted more, or Korah did anyways. And so they led this rebellion against Moses, which failed spectacularly, because God judged them in a very miraculous way. You may remember that Korah and the guys that were in this rebellion, God split the ground from underneath them, and fire rose up as they fell into this big pit that God created, and they were killed by the Lord. And apparently, some of Korah's family was spared, because these guys descended from them. They are descendants from that Korah, which goes to show that even though you may have a wicked father, or a wicked grandfather, or a wicked ancestor, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be wicked. Because these men have penned some of the greatest psalms in this book. So they descended from Korah, and they were also given the charge by David to serve in the, in the temple, also as gatekeepers and apparently as leading the people in, in singing as well. So that's who the, the Korahites are, and that's who the sons of Korah are. And that's who this man is who wrote this psalm. Now the situation that he's in. So when you put that perspective, that background in mind, who this man is, you know, his primary job being to serve in the, the, the presence of the temple, to serve the, the people as they come to worship at the temple, as they, as they sing, to lead them in God's praises. It's no wonder that he starts the psalm as he does. Because we find out in verse 2 and also in verse 5 that he's been removed from the temple. He's been removed from the presence of God that is found there at the temple. Now he knows that he's not been completely removed from the presence of God because God is omnipresence. He's everywhere but he's talking about the, the presence that God had especially made known to His people in the temple that had been built by Solomon. So he's been removed from it. Verse 2b, the, the second part of verse 2, he says, When shall I come and appear before God or, or see the face of God? And the second part of verse 5, he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, speaking of God, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. We're not sure exactly where that is, but we just know that he's been removed from this presence of God and he's desiring to be back there. And not only has he been removed from the presence of God, but he has some enemy that he is possibly taking him captive, taking him prisoner, maybe leading him away in one of the captivities that like whenever the, the people of Babylon came to Jerusalem and they sacked Jerusalem and they took some of the people and they led them away to their own country, maybe he's a part of that. That exile that took place, we're not sure. But he's been removed from his land, from what he does, from what he loves, from the presence of God there at the temple. 
He desires to be back. And on top of all that, on top of all that, he's being mocked in the process. Verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Where is your God? And I'm sure that comes across in a or with a sting. You know, he's been removed from God's presence. And if these people have come and invaded his city, they may be saying, where is your God in the sense of, where is he at now? What's he going to do? You know, how's he going to save you now? What good is your God now? We just ransacked your city and took you away from it. He's not very powerful, is he now? huh? What about his great promises that he made to you? Maybe mocking him in ways like that. Where is your God? Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones. He describes it as a, a deadly wound. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long again, where is your God? So the psalmist is away from the presence of God. He desires to be back in the presence of God so that he can praise Him once more, so that He can lead the people of God in praising Him, so that He can be back in God's presence doing what He loves to do, what He was given the responsibility of doing, but He is unable to return for however long because of this enemy who is mocking Him, taunting Him. And the result is that He feels very low and he feels very cast down. Verse 3. Listen again as he, as he describes not only his situation, but how he feels about what's going on. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? My tears have been my food day and night. That's a lot of tears. Day and night, this man has been crying out his soul, basically pouring out his soul in tears. Despairing greatly because of what's going on. Second part of verse 5, he says again, my soul is cast down within me. It feels very low. It feels cast down. Like somebody has just taken it, thrown it on the ground, maybe stomped all over it. It just feels lifeless. Verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So again and again, it just feels like these, these waterfalls are crushing down upon him, these waves, these breakers. Whenever a moment comes that he may see, he may see some relief, another one comes and just smashes against him and knocks him back down. First part of verse 10, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taught me. So this is how he feels in the midst of his situation. This is how his emotions are going on within him. So I think it's safe to say that this man feels totally broken and defeated. And he maybe even feels a, a little bit of, of hopelessness, hopelessness as he considers his his situation. And we've all been there, haven't we? I mean, no. 
we may not have faced a situation exactly like what this man has faced, but we have all known great depression, great sadness. We all know what it feels like to have our souls cast down. We all know what it feels like to be in a season of our life where we just feel very hopeless. And like he says, anytime light starts to shine through the darkness, another wave of discomfort, another wave of chaos or taunting just sweeps over us and it knocks us back down. We know what it feels like to be cast down. We know what it feels like to feel broken. We know what it feels like to have sadness consume us. We know what it feels like to be in a dark place, as old theologians described it. We know what it feels like to experience the the dark night of the soul. And some of us may be there this morning. So what I want to know now, what I want us to see now, is how he fights for joy even though he feels cast down. How he fights this depression. Even though he's in the midst of this this great sorrow, even though his soul feels cast down, even though he may feel hopeless in his situation, how does he fight? Because that's the difference between a Christian and a person who is not a Christian. Not that Christians don't have hard times, not that Christians don't fight, or not that they face hardship, but that they fight in the midst of it. That's the difference. Christians face hard times too. They face depression as well. Sometimes they don't look like joyful people. Sometimes they may look like they've never known joy at all. But the difference is that they fight and that they have a desire to fight. That's what we must know. And that comes from what we were looking at last week. You know, the accomplishments of Christ on the cross and making us a new person, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's where that desire comes from. The desire to fight. The desire to continually run the race of the Christian life, even when it's hard. So how does this man fight? What does he do? Well, as we look throughout the psalm, we see six ways that he fights for joy. Six ways that he seeks to bring himself up out of this pit that he's in. Or six ways that he seeks to encourage his downcast soul. Number one, the psalmist desires God above all else. That's the first thing that we see that he does. It's in verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So when you feel cast down, what is it that you desire most? When you are in a situation, whether it be depression, whether it be great sorrow, whether it be great sadness, 
You may have people who are mocking you. Maybe you just had a, a horrible situation that you're facing and you know, you're supposed to be a Christian. God's supposed to come and help you and deliver you and make you look like some supernatural person and it's just not happening. And here you have this person who is just trying to make you feel even worse and they're saying, where is your God? Where's He at now? You know, you've talked very highly of Him and the promises that He makes in His Word. Where's He at? Doesn't seem to be doing anything. What do you desire most in the midst of that? Is it comfort? Is that what you desire most? Do you desire, do you ask for to be back in a place of comfort? To just have these oppressive things removed from you? Is that what you, is that what we desire most in our suffering when our souls are downcast? Or do we desire God above all else? Because that's what He desires most of all. If we desire comfort, if you desire comfort most of all when you're suffering or when your soul is downcast, you will be disappointed when you get it. If that's all you want, if that's what most if that is what is most important to you you will be disappointed when you get it because comfort does not satisfy comfort does not lift up the soul and you can ask anyone who has experienced great comfort that it does not do this i mean they came out with a show a while back about people who had won the lottery and then wasted their lives after it And there are many other examples just like it. Great comfort does not lift up the soul. So if what you desire in the midst of your suffering, no matter how good it may seem, you will be once again disappointed. I mean, at first it may seem to give you what you want. It may may like better. It may give you great ease. It may subdue your emotions that were just in turmoil within you. But at the end of it, your soul is going to be just as downcast as it was before. Now, I'm not saying that to want the situation or the oppressive things that are going on to be removed is a bad thing. To desire comfort is not a bad thing. It's just not what you need to desire most of all. Because the psalmist, he desires to have these things removed as well. He wants to be back at the temple. He wants to be back where he can lead God's people in God's praises. He wants these people to leave him alone, frankly, so he can go back to doing that. And you believe, believe it or not, he's asking God in his prayer, and if you consider Psalm 43 as a continuation of Psalm 42, you can see it there. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Take it away, please. He asked for that. But that's not what he cares about and what he asked for most of all. He desires for God 
He desires to be in the presence of God. He desires to experience God once more. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. On a day when you're it's hot outside, like the weather that we're facing now, and you're thirsty, you know, you just want to drink, you feel parched. That's how this man feels about God in his presence. I thirst for God. He's what I need. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I see His face? When shall I be in His presence? May we, when we suffer, may we, when our souls are downcast, desire God most of all. Whether the suffering is lifted or whether it continues. The second thing, or the second way that the psalmist fights for joy, or the second way that he struggles well, is that he remembers something while he feels downcast. What does he remember? Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng, or the multitude, and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So the first thing that we see him remembering or calling to mind as he feels downcast, as he calls to mind what it was like to be with God's people singing God's praises. That's what he's calling to mind. Now I think that this is both a encouraging thing to remember, and it can also be a, a sad thing to remember as well. Sad because, you know, he's been removed from this setting. So think about if you were not able to come and worship with your church family for a long period of time, for whatever reason, and you were remembering it, you were calling it to mind. You would be kind of sad, right? Because you would desire to be there. You would want to be there with your brothers and sisters in Christ singing praises to God. Would you not? Yes. So it would kind of be sad. I'm sure he feels some sadness as he remembers this. But it's also uplifting because this reminds him of how real and how powerful God's presence is. And I hope we feel that way here at Alts Chapel when we sing together as we sing God's praises together. I hope we feel the, the real, genuine presence of God among us as we sing His great promises. Do you feel that way when you sing together with God's people? If you don't, you have a very low view of what it is like to sing God's praises with His people. He remembers something else. He remembers God. Second part of verse 6. He says, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, or because, because my soul is downcast within me, I remember you, God, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. 
So as he's struggling, as he's trying to get to a place where he can praise God once again, where as he's trying to lift up his soul from the pit, from the depths, he remembers God. And I'm sure as he's remembering God, he's remembering specific things about God. I'm sure he's not just remembering, oh yeah, God, generally, you're out there, I know who you are. No, I'm sure he is remembering specific promises about who God is, his faithfulness, his promises in his word, who he says that he is, what he says that he will do. So when we are struggling, when we are downcast, remember God. And don't just remember Him generally. Generally, Remember His promises that He's made. Remember His faithfulness. Recall the moments in the Bible when He was faithful generations before. Faithful to other people. Faithful to other saints. To other Christians. Maybe in your own life. People that you know. Remember that about God. And remember that He will be faithful and do the same to you. This is what he remembers about God as his soul is downcast and as he struggles, as he fights for joy. Three, the psalmist recognizes that God is sovereign over even what is causing him to feel downcast. And oh, this is so important. He recognizes that God is sovereign over even what is causing him to feel downcast. If you do not have a good theology of the sovereignty of God, you will not suffer well. You won't. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Speaking of God. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This man understands that God is completely in control of all things and He's in control of the situation that He is in now. And when you understand this, when you know that God is in control of all things, even your suffering, you know that even though you can't completely understand why you're going through this trial, why you're suffering the way that you are, God does. And He has a purpose for it. He has a reason for it, for your good if you are a Christian. Because He works all things together for good for those who love Him, according to Romans chapter 8. So when you know and understand that God is sovereign, even in the midst of the hardships, even when you don't completely understand it, you don't know why, you can rejoice because your God does. And He will use it for your good, even if you don't understand it in this life. If you don't understand that, you will just simply suffer and complain. An example that we brought up in the second sermon specifically, was the story of Joseph. I mean, you think about the suffering of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Jacob's son. Over and over again, that man suffered greatly. Being put in jail, being accused, 
his brothers selling him into slavery. But the end of all that, after years and years of suffering, he came to the end of it and he saw God's purpose for his suffering. And he was able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And it's the same thing about your suffering as well. Whatever situation, whether you're sick, whether people are inflicting pain upon you, whether they are torturing you or mocking you, whatever it may be, maybe you have you know, cancer or some terminal illness, whatever, that truth is true for you as well. These things may mean this for evil, but God means it for good. Always. Four. The psalmist sings the truths of God while he is downcast. Verse 8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. This is a good reason not only to memorize Scripture, but to memorize good, solid songs. To memorize them so that when you're suffering, when your soul is downcast, you can sing them like He does here. Listen again. It says, By the day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So you can take that song, whatever it may be, whatever you have in your mind, whatever you've memorized, whatever song you know very well, you can sing it and you can turn it into a prayer to God and be encouraged as you sing it. That's why I say good, solid songs. Songs that sing the promises of God, not songs that today tend to be lighthearted fluff. You know, they just kind of repeat the same words over and over again, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But when you're suffering, you don't just want to sing something general about God. I know I don't. Whenever I'm having a hard time or whenever I'm suffering, when my soul is downcast, I want the promises of God to be continually washing over me and what I'm listening to and the songs that I sing Learn some good, solid songs and have them in your tool belt ready to whip out when you need them. Know them well so that you can sing them. So that they can fill your soul with joy. Songs like, It is well with my soul. That is such a wonderful song. And guess what? It was written by a man who was suffering. Who would have thought? Jesus paid it all. Another wonderful song. He will hold me fast. What we just sang together. In Christ alone. Those are just some examples of some good solid songs that we sing together here. And there are many more that I could mention. But learn and memorize some good songs that you can sing them when your soul is downcast. Number five. The psalmist is honest with God and others about how he feels. Verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Listen to the honesty of this man as he 
is honest with God and he is honest with others. Primarily he's honest with God, but he's honest with others because he wrote this down so that others could see it and know it. And I'm sure he confessed it to others as well. But listen to the honesty that he says here. He says, I say to God, my rock. And then listen, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me, God? Now, he doesn't really think that God has forgotten him, but that's just how he feels. Again, we are people who have emotions. We don't just go through life with the stiff upper lip saying, God is for me and by golly, nothing's going to bother me. No, that's true, but still you feel like, God, where are you at? As you pour tears out upon your face. We are people who have real emotions. And those real emotions do their job. They work. And they're on display here as he cries out to God. Knowing that God hasn't forgotten him, but being honest and saying, this is how I feel, God. Where are you at? I feel like you've forgotten me. And then he said, he asked, why again? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why God? Why do these people keep taunting me? Why do they keep saying the things that they are saying to me and about you? Why God? And this is something that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, it is hard to be honest like this. In your prayer life to God and especially with others. Think about this for a moment. If I was to stand up here in our opening prayers at the beginning of the service, and I was to pray, say, this part of the psalm, or many of the other psalms that have language just like this, and I didn't tell you that I was quoting a psalm, some people would think, what did he just say? Can he say that? Can he say, God, why have you forgotten me? Surely that's blasphemy. But it's in the Bible. It's here in Psalm 42. And it's within many of the other Psalms. This is great honesty being put on display. This isn't a blasphemous statement. Because like I said, he doesn't really think that God has forgotten him. And when people suffer, sometimes they make comments that normally they might not would make, but they're just being honest about how they feel. It's just a process of getting our emotions out there and seeking healing. Being honest with God and being honest with others. This is how I feel. Yes, I know the promises of God are true. Yes, I know God's Word is true. But this is just where I'm at. Please help me. Number six. Finally, the psalmist preaches to himself. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I bring this one up last because the psalmist mentions it twice in the psalm, and he also closes the psalm 
with it as well. If you want to learn to fight for joy when you feel cast down, you must learn to preach to yourself. Or, to use another word, to, to talk to yourself, to speak to yourself. If you want to learn how to fight for joy when your soul is cast down, you must learn how to preach to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned him a moment, a moment ago. He wrote a book a long time ago uh, with the title of Spiritual Depression. That's what he called it. And here's a quote from his book. This is really good. I don't think we have the book in our library. I need to get it. But it is a must-read on this topic. Depression, spiritual depression, when your soul is downcast. Probably one of the greatest works written, ever written on this topic. Here's a quote from his book. Listen to this. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou soul cast down? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Now I know that's kind of comical, but that's what you got to do. <laughs> Honestly. Like he says there in his book, when you wake up in the morning, your thoughts are already there whether you like them or not. And most of the time, they are negative thoughts, not positive ones. If you're like me, they're just about all negative, except for the ones that I speak to myself. And you can either go through the day listening to yourself, beat yourself down into the dirt, or you can do like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and like the psalmist in Psalm 42 does, you can stand up and say to yourself, listen, I will speak to you. What are you going to say? Christian? How are you going to speak to yourself? Speak the gospel to yourself. You speak truths like this to yourself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20 I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Philippians 4 verses 12 and 13 And then the final passage I want to bring up is Romans chapter 8. 
And this is a really good passage because it's kind of a back and forth passage. What then shall we say to these things? Soul? Ryan? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Soul? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Soul? Is God, it is God who justifies. Soul? Who is to condemn? Soul? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for you, soul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, soul? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is no, soul. None of these will. That is what you preach. To yourself and many other promises that are found in God's Word. So when you are downcast, which you will be at some point, Christian, follow the example that we see here in Psalm 42. Learn how to fight for joy like this man fought for joy. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives, the example and the instruction that it gives. Oh, I pray that we would learn from the examples that we have, like the psalmist in Psalm 42, as we seek to struggle well, to fight well, to run the race of the Christian life well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.